0: Open your Bibles, whether they be on paper or electronic, and turn to uh, Acts chapter 24. Acts 24. We are getting near the end of our sermon series in the book of Acts. A few chapters left. I think, Lord willing, we'll be wrapping up at the end of January, after which we'll we'll find some new blessing from God's Word. As we consider Acts 24... uh, we're going to hear some themes that we've heard before, some things that Paul has talked about quite a bit, and he's going to talk about again. And it reminds me of people we know, of people you know, people I know, people in your life who, who seem to always come back around to the same thing. Sooner or later, they're going to end up talking about it. Whether it's their favorite sports team or their favorite hobby, somehow they always work fishing into every conversation. Or perhaps the the, uh, the eagles have to be a part of, of every discussion at some point or another with them. There are those when I... Uh, teach Sunday school over the years, there'll be certain people in my class, the minute their hand goes up, I know the question is going to be about the Holy Spirit. Bob always asks about the Holy Spirit. You know, Jim, he always wants me to talk about the sovereignty of God. There are certain topics with certain people that always seem to come up. Paul seems to always come back around to the topic of the resurrection. And as we here are about ready to celebrate the birth of Christ, I thought it would be an interesting and a good and valuable reminder of the fact that the baby who came, came to accomplish more than just being on this earth. That his birth led to his life, and his life led to his death, and his death led ultimately to the resurrection. And it is the resurrection that validates and makes worthwhile everything that came before. Without the resurrection, there is no point in celebrating Christmas. Christmas is no more important than any other birth. The birth of Jesus of Nazareth is no more important than your or my birth if he doesn't rise from the dead. And it's because of the resurrection that Christmas is worth celebrating. And so we're going to hear Paul talk again about the resurrection, and we're going to consider some of that and how that affects how we ought to be thinking about things and perhaps how we ought to be talking about the resurrection. Join me now in reading Acts 24, and I will, as I do occasionally, I'll stop and comment along the way as we consider some of the details of this Text, beginning in verse 1. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he, Paul, had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. I'm going to pause there. It's interesting. uh, Luke writes that he's going to accuse. Tertullus begun to accuse him, and yet what we see here are all these complimentary words. What's going on? Well, uh, there's a number of things going on here. One... I want us to recognize that Luke records a very accurate, very fitting description of a typical Roman courtroom scene. We have records of how Roman courts were conducted. We, they had, we didn't call them stenographers, but they by shorthand they t- took records of what happened in the courts just as we do today. We have some of those, have survived and been found by archaeologists. And what we see is a scene very similar to what we have here. And it is a reminder, again, that what Luke records for us is history. It's not fiction. It's not a, 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 a made-up story with a good moral or a good point to it. It's not invented. It's history. It's facts that actually happened. And it is a reminder for us that the hope we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ is a historical hope rooted in actual history, events that actually took place. A real baby was born. He lived a real life. He died a real death. And he really rose. And Luke reminds us of the historical aspects of that. What do we see here? What's some of the stuff that's happening here? Well, we we, uh, uh, we 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 see um, Tertullus. He's a lawyer. He's he's a hired attorney presenting the case on behalf of the Jewish leadership. And he uh, begins with something called the uh, 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 captatio. Uh, uh, I'm not particularly good at English, let alone Latin. Captatio uh, benevolentia, uh, Valentia, the winning of goodwill. And this was a typical way to begin. Much like we would address a court with a certain amount of respect, your honor, it was customary then to begin with kind words, flattery even. Uh, 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 Tertullus goes a little over the top. In fact, nothing he says is actually true. Um, What we know of Felix from history is that he um, was really not a particularly worthy leader. He got his position not because of his own skills, but rather because of his family connections. His brother was the secretary of the treasury under emperors Claudius and Nero. And it was for this reason and through these connections that he rose to power, not because of his own abilities. And in fact, history says that he was a rather unfit Man given to uh, uh, violence, given to rash decisions—not the wisdom that is implied here. Okay, that he was a man who uh, uh, did things in a very selfish way. That under his rule of Judea, the, if there was to be any justice, it was only that which was purchased—that that which was bought. And as a result, nobody trusted the justice system, and so there was a great deal of crime. Under his rule, and in fact, in the, well, in the eight years that he was in power in Judea, crime skyrocketed. And many historians will say that it is because of his rule, though he was taken out of Judea in, in AD 60. Um, it's largely what happened under his rule that led to the Jewish wars that began in AD 66. Um, and so he was an, a, a, an unfit, unable, um, bungling leader. And in fact, there was a, uh, uh, some violence that broke out between Jews and Gentiles, and he so grossly mishandled it that he was finally recalled to Rome, and we're going to see that at the end of this passage. We're going to see him leave the scene. And he is finally recalled to Rome, and he only avoided the death penalty, again, because of the connections of his brother. And yet, what we see here is Tertullus saying, you know, opening up saying, you, you know, you, you, you've, you've made these reforms, you've got so much foresight, you're such a great leader that it's uh, led to all kinds of peace and all kinds of stability, and great things are happening in the society because of your leadership. And what Tertullus is just doing is greasing the skids, saying, well, if someone so wise and so able has been running the, uh, the region, well then clearly a wise, able person is going to find that the truth is on our side. That we're the side that you should rule in favor of. This is a pretty typical opening to the courtroom. Now we pick up in verse 4. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. So now he brings the the formal charges against Paul. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now this is an interesting contrast. Felix, you're a man of foresight and wisdom. This man is a plague. You're a man who brought peace to our region. Paul stirs up riots. You are a reformer in the best way. This man is trying to lead his own reformation, but it's just a group of crazies. It's this group of Nazarenes. The charges that are brought here against uh, um, Paul really have more to do with the, the nature of the audience than the actual offenses of Paul got more to do with who they're talking to. You're a Roman governor. You care about maintaining the peace. Rome cared a great deal about avoiding riots and uprisings. And we're claiming this man is a rioter and causes uprisings. And really what this has got to do, they're playing to politics. They're not playing to the truth of the situation, but they're bringing up a political situation that forces Felix to sit up and pay attention. A Roman governor could not ignore any charge of rioting, of upheaval, of a disruption of the peace. And so that's what they charge him with. Verse 6, He, Paul, even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. We helped you out, Felix. We stepped in to prevent things from getting any worse. We're on your side. And therefore, we expect you to be On our side. By examining him him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Look, Felix, we've brought you a really easy case. This is just open and shut. Don't even worry too much about it. Just rule in our favor. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. One of the uh, 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 hard and, and steadfast rules of Roman court is that the accusers had to be there. They could hire a lawyer, they could hire a man like Tertullus to come in and speak for them, but they still had to be present in the court. And so part of what you see here is that the Jews are there. That Felix is looking out to go, where are his accusers? And they're all over here in this section. They're nodding. They're in agreement. They're with to tell us where, yep, we're here. We're on board with this. Those, those, what he has said is what we believe. And so we've got this. Luke is telling us that the court could proceed and go forward. And so verse 10. When the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. So Paul also opens with the rhetorical device of winning the goodwill. He says nice things, he just happens to be truthful about them. You've been in your position a long time, six years at this point. That's about the nicest thing Paul can think to say about Felix. And then Paul goes on to say, oh yeah, and I'm happy to make my defense. Well, Paul was always happy to talk about Christianity. Paul was always happy to defend the faith. So it didn't matter that he was in this courtroom. So Paul follows the same rhetorical device. He just sticks a little closer to the truth. Paul is going to go on now and make uh, uh, what was known as the apologia, the apologia, the defense. It's a legal term. You can hear in it our word apology. Now sometimes an apology can be uh, uh, an admission of doing something wrong. You know, I, I was I was wrong and I'm sorry, but. Even today, when we apologize, what do we tend to do? We tend to defend ourselves. Well, yeah, that happened, but it wasn't really my fault. You know, these circumstances, this and this and this and this, that's what made me do it. And we see that word apology, that idea of defending yourself. In Christian uh, 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 circles, we still use that word in in what we call our apologetics, the defense of the faith. And Paul is going to mount an apologia, a a legal defense, and he's going to spin it into a defense of the faith as well. And so we see that here. Verse 11, Paul says, You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. All this happened less than two weeks ago, Felix. It's easy enough to verify what I'm about to say. What Paul is saying in essence is this I have no reason to lie to you. If I lie to you, you're going to find it out. If I lie to you, you're going to uncover it easily enough. Why would I risk lying to you? That'll just make my situation worse. You can easily verify this. Verse 12. Uh, um, Uh, uh, uh. And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Paul says, yes, there was a riot, but it wasn't me. I'm not the one who started it. When I got into Jerusalem, I've been a good guy. I've been quiet. Yeah, oh yeah, maybe I've been a part of some arguments in some other places. But in Jerusalem, I've kept a low profile. As you'll recall, that was by design. Remember when he arrives in Jerusalem, that James and the other elders come to him and ask him to tone it down. They ask him to uh, to rein it in a little bit, and he says, "Okay, I will." And so he has been flying under the radar. It's interesting there the comment about the synagogues. Apparently, in Jerusalem, the Christians were still the Christian Jews were still meeting in the synagogues. You may recall that in some of the outlying areas, that had ceased. In Ephesus, they had remember they had had to move out of the synagogue and begin to meet in the uh, school hall, the hall of Tyrannus. But here, they're still in the synagogues. Verse 13. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. They have made up these charges, but they can prove nothing. Jewish law and Roman law and our law today... It says it's not enough to just make accusations. You can't just make wild claims. You have to have evidence. If you're familiar with the scriptures, you're familiar with this idea of every matter being established by two or three witnesses. It's not enough to just say it. Saying it doesn't make it so. And Paul stands before Felix and says, I don't care how many times they say it, And I don't care how many of them nod their heads. I don't care how many of them uh, uh, repost it on their Facebook page, how many of them like it, how many of them retweet it. I don't care if it gets a million retweets. That doesn't make it true. Truth is not established by how many people say it. Truth is established by evidence. And Paul says, listen, there's no evidence. They have leveled accusations, but they haven't offered any proof. We must be people who care about the truth and establish, that care about establishing the truth in genuine, authentic, real ways. Verse 14. So, Uh, But this I confess to you. So now, so Paul's kind of moved from his defense. I haven't done any of the things that they're accusing. But I will tell you what I have done. Verse 14. This I confess to you, that according to the way... Reminder that that's how Christians referred to themselves in the book of Acts. The way... Uh, 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 I lost my place. Oh, there we go. Uh, But this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. It's an interesting tact Paul takes at this point. He says to Felix, Listen, sir, I actually agree with these men and they with me. We're on the same page. We're here. They're accusing me of all these things, but in the essence, in the essential things that really matter, we agree with each other. I go to the same church they go to. I worship the same God they worship. I hold to the same scriptures they hold to. I believe the Old Testament just as they didn't call it the Old Testament back then. I believe the Bible just as they believe the Bible. I hold to everything they hold to. Believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. He says, listen, I accept that Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah are honest-to-goodness prophets, men of God, bringers of oracles, bringers of divine hope. Picking up in verse 15, he says, Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a, a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Again, you, Felix, you're a pagan. You have this platonic way of thinking. You believe the body to be bad. You believe that death frees the spirit from the body. But that's not what we believe. They and I, we agree that the body will one day be resurrected. That the body is not an inherently bad thing that we will one day be raised out of the grave and our bodies restored to what they were supposed to be all along. Basically, what Paul is saying is this. Whatever I'm being accused of that caused problems, they're guilty of the same thing. They're guilty of the same thing. Verse 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. They're accusing me of doing st- things that are wrong, but I have been super-duper careful not to do anything wrong. I am fastidious about this so that my conscience would be clear. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings they're accusing me of stirring up riots in Jerusalem I actually came to give relief to the poor in Jerusalem I came with money to help to make Jerusalem better not to make it worse by the way remember we talked about the corruption of Felix Remember we said how justice was purchased under his reign Paul just mentioned all this money he brought from Jerusalem. We're going to see Felix keep Paul locked up for two years. Why? He wants part of that money. He wants a piece of all. You got that kind of money? Seriously, you, can make a, you, can, you brought enough money, you can make a difference in Jerusalem? That's a significant amount of money. I want some of that. We're going to see later that Felix, uh, next week actually, that Felix is going to keep him locked up over this issue of the money. Um, Verse 18, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, look at how he pauses here, oh, by the way, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing, he says, Felix, this is what it comes down to right here. This is what they're really worked up about. This is why they are outraged. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Let's pray. Lord, give us insight into this passage to understand why it is that Paul keeps going back to this issue. Why it is that Paul keeps making every discussion about the resurrection, and as we come to understand this, help us to, to move beyond understanding to belief that we would see the importance of the resurrection in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to take a look at three break this section this, this, this passage into three parts. Uh, the first are verses 1 through 13. I think there's a typo in the, in the bulletin. It says 1 to 3. Oh, the 1 is missing there. Sorry about that. 1 through 13. Then we're going to look at 14 through uh, 20. And then finally at verse 21. And I want us to see, first of all, in this opening section, that, that Paul really stresses the fact that he's done nothing wrong. Do no wrong. Don't do anything wrong. Why is that so important? And this is not the first time we've seen Paul talk about this either. And why is this such a big deal? Well, one of the things, one of the realities, if if you've been around for any length of time, you know this to be true, that the moment a disagreement breaks out, the moment there's any kind of back and forth over the facts, somebody will very quickly get off the discussion of the facts and simply begin to attack the person. Rather than deal with the facts, just attack the person. You can remember how this goes. It starts way back early on. You're, you're in, I don't know, first grade, and, and you make the mistake of saying that 2 plus 2 is 5, and somebody, one of the kids in the class goes, no, it's not. 2 plus 2 is 4. And what do you respond with? Well, you're a stupid head. What's that got to do with the truth of 2 plus 2? They're a stupid head? And then, of course, the response is, yeah, well, you fell down playing kickball at recess. What's that got to do with anything? But that's how we are. Sadly, that's how we are at some of the highest levels. I don't like what you decide. I don't like what you have to, well, how you think about that. But rather than discuss and debate the issue, I'm just going to call you names, and attack you as a person. In fact, this is such a common argument that it actually has a Latin name. It's called an ad hominem argument. Hominem meaning human, ad meaning toward or at. It's at the human being, attacking the person rather than the ideas or the topics. And Paul, recognizing that this is common practice, says, I have been very careful to be sure that there's nothing about me that can be attacked. I have been very careful to be sure that there's nothing about me that can be attacked. Have you thought about that aspect of your Christian life? Not about whether or not you have a good reputation, not whether or not, it's not about how people think about you, but living in such a way that when you finally get into a debate over Jesus, when you finally are witnessing to your neighbor over the fence, when you finally do share with the co-worker over coffee, that there's nothing in your life that they can attack. Or if they do so, it'll simply be empty and obvious to everybody around. Jesus talked about living in such a way that your good works would shine forth and be known that they would overwhelm such arguments. One of the reasons that we need to seek to live as righteously as possible is so that the, our lives don't become a stumbling stone for the gospel. The truth of the gospel does not change by virtue of the messenger. All messengers of the gospel, except for Jesus himself, have been sinners. They're all fallen, broken people. Peter was flawed, and John was flawed, and Paul was flawed. Moses was flawed, and Elijah was flawed. They're all sinners, and you and I are sinners. And yet, we should still make every effort to minimize our sins so that they do not get in the way of the gospel message. So that when they come after us and they say things like, well, you're just a bunch of hypocrites, it minimizes the impact of that argument. The ad hominem argument is going to take place. And Paul says, hey, look it, I've lived in such a way that not one word of what they're saying against me personally is true. They're attacking me because they don't like my messy." but their attacks against me ring hollow. I have done none of the wrong I'm accused of doing. In verses 14 through 20, he then begins to turn around and say, not just have I not done the wrong things, but look at the right things I've done, Felix. Look how I have lived rightly. I go to church. I worship God. Verse 14, I believe in the Bible. Verse 14. Verse 15, my hope is in God. By the way, I do want to pause there for just a moment. Let's not let our hope in a vaccine ever cloud the issue. Let's not let our hope in the the, the government, government of our choice cloud the issue. Let's not let the hope we have in a new job or this or that or the other thing get in the way. Does God work in and through governments and vaccines and jobs? Absolutely, he does. Well, let's be sure that our hope is clearly in God. As he might choose to work through those other things, but never those things being the issue. He says, my hope is in God there in 15. Not in being a Pharisee, not being part of the the right political party, though he was a part of a party. He says, my hope is in God. Verse 16, I strive to have a clear conscience. Look at the right things I'm doing. Verse 17, I brought help to Jerusalem. Look at the right things I'm doing. Verse 18, when they found me, I was purified, not profaning the temple. I was alone and quiet, not stirring up a riot. Paul says, I have not only not done the wrong things of which I'm accused, but I've done exactly all the things that a good Jew ought to be doing. I've done everything that's expected of us. Again, the encouragement to us, the challenge to us, is to seek to do what's right. It is undermining our testimony when we're not doing the things we ought to be doing. When we tell our loved ones and our friends that they ought to go to church and we don't, that's a bit of a problem. When we tell our loved ones and our friends that they ought to to behave a certain way and we don't, and Paul says, I have striven to have a clear conscience in these ways. But the bottom line is still the bottom line. It doesn't matter if somebody's a stupid head. Two plus two is four. The facts are still the facts. The truth is still the truth. And that is good news for us, because we are going to fail. We are going to stumble. We are going to sin. We are going to fail to do the good that we ought to do. And yet the truth transcends our failures. It's one of the reasons that Paul constantly comes back around to the resurrection. It's why we see here in verse 21, It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Now, something interesting happens. This is now like the third time, and it's not the last time, that we've seen Paul bring up this topic. And it's about time that we notice what doesn't happen next. And that is that nobody challenges him on it. Nobody calls him on it. It was just three years earlier that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians 15, in which he said... That, that the Lord was raised from the dead and he appeared to many of the brothers. He appeared to, you know, uh, you know first to Peter and then to John and then the others and then to his own brother, to his, half, uh, his biological half brothers, and then to more than 500, some of whom have fallen asleep, but most of whom are still with us. Now, where did most of those witnesses of Jesus' resurrection live? In and around Jerusalem. So, here it is, what, uh, about 25 years after Jesus' resurrection? If it weren't true, what would be happening by now? Wouldn't there be cracks in the story? Wouldn't there be some of them falling away, saying, yeah, I know, I, I once said the resurrection happened, I once said I saw Jesus, but I really didn't. You know, I didn't. I made it up because I wanted to be cool. I thought seeing a dead person alive would be kind of cool, but it didn't really happen. You know, I'd had a little too much to drink, and you know, James, his younger brother, looks a lot like Jesus, and I'd been a little drinking, a little heavy, and the light. When I thought James was Jesus, and it really wasn't Jesus. If this weren't true, if the resurrection weren't true, there would be the the foundation of Christianity would be crumbling by this point. And there would be witnesses in and around Jerusalem. And these Jews, Ananias and these other elders, could easily have pulled them into court. They could have easily grabbed one of them and brought them in and said, Felix, listen, he keeps talking about the resurrection. And remember, Paul was not talking about the hypothetical resurrection out in the future. His point was that it's begun. We've seen it. The first fruits of the hope for resurrection are with us and among us. We've witnessed it. And why doesn't Ananias ever say, well, we can now prove that to be false? Because he couldn't prove it to be false. Because there were no cracks in that story. Because the witnesses who saw it were sticking by it. Because the resurrection changes everything. Think about how it changed the people who saw it. Peter can't stand up to a 12-year-old girl on the night of the crucifixion. Aren't you one of those Galileans? <clears throat> not me. Oh, no. I'm not Galilean. Yeah, I'm just going to perform in my hands here by the fire. Leave me alone there. No, you're one of them. I recognize the accent. You were with him. No, no, I wasn't. He finally swears at her. Knock it off, I'm not with them. Because, you know, 12-year-old slave girls can be pretty intimidating. Peter later dies for his conviction in the resurrection. Because he saw the risen Jesus and it changed him. James and Jude, they write two books of the New Testament. James is the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He's the guy that just two chapters ago convinced Paul to behave a certain way. Convinced Paul. It ain't easy to convince Paul of anything. And James convinces Paul. To be, who is James? He's the guy who back in Mark uh, 3 says, Yeah, he's crazy. That older brother of ours, he's nuts. He's lost his mind. And in fact, the scriptures record that none of his siblings believed him until when? Until the resurrection. till they saw him. And they went, oh, wait a second. That's a bit of an issue there. He's back from the dead. That changes everything. And James will eventually give his life for his conviction of the resurrection. And you say to yourself, well, Scott, maybe, maybe they, they, they were bringing these witnesses into trial, and Luke just doesn't record it. Luke is just whitewashing Christianity. Why? What, what would that gain Luke? What would he get for that? He's a respected member of society. He's a doctor. What's he going to gain by fabricating a falsehood, especially one as bizarre? Do you know how people look at you when you talk about resurrection? If you start walking around going, Grandma's alive. Oh yeah, we get it, Scott. You loved your grandma Shaw and she made you cookies and so you know she's alive in your heart. And when you when you see those little cookies, you always think of Grandma Shaw. Actually, it's been funny. This week I think I've mentioned my grandma Shaw like twice, you know. There were two things that are in our household that, oh, that reminds me of Grandma Shaw. Yeah, she's alive in your heart. No, she's not alive in my heart. She's really alive. Yeah, didn't you say you buried your grandmother like five years ago? No, no, no she's alive you're going to get some weird looks. Why would Luke do that? What's to be gained? Paul keeps coming back around to the resurrection because that's the issue that changes everything. And that's the point at which a decision has to be made. that's the place we need to be taking our loved ones and our co-workers and our neighbors. Dear friend, you need to wrestle with the resurrection. Stop saying that Christianity is nice, that if it makes you a better person, I guess it's okay for you. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we're liars. And you better call us out as liars. Liars. Take a stand, dear neighbor. Did he rise? If so, believe. And if he did not, then, then fight against Christianity as the lie that you think it is. But get off this toast, middle of the road. You know, man be pamby, oh, Christianity is not... Ni- no! It's either the truth or it's of the devil. And when you keep coming back to the resurrection... When you say, have you studied the resurrection? Have you looked into the evidence for the resurrection? Have you considered, why would Roman guards let a bunch of Jews steal the body? They wouldn't. There's no way they would risk their own lives so that the body could be stolen. It wasn't stolen. He didn't just swoon on the cross. If the Romans knew how to do anything, they knew how to kill people and make sure they were really, really dead. He died up there. But the tomb was empty, and he appeared to a bunch of people, and not one person ever recanted that story. Nobody ever came forward. All the record, nobody ever came and said, yeah, actually, I was lying, I made it up, it didn't happen. No, because the resurrection changes everything. So here we are, the week of Christmas. Why does the baby matter? Because the baby lived perfect life why does that matter because he still died and the wages of sin is death how could a perfect one die why does that matter because in his death was payment for the sin of those who would believe and how do we know that to be true because god said you don't deserve to die you don't deserve to stay dead i'm going to raise you from the dead as proof that you don't deserve to die, as proof that your death is now available to pay for other people's sins. So it's all about the resurrection, even here at Christmas. Make it about the resurrection. Talk about the resurrection. Look into your own life and ask yourself this. If the resurrection ain't true, does anything change in my life? Our lives had better be wasted if the resurrection isn't true. If our lives are okay either way, with or without the resurrection, then we aren't living as though the resurrection is true. Is your life a waste if the resurrection ain't true? It ought to be. Because the resurrection changes everything. That's why Paul kept coming back around to it. That's why it's the topic he cannot let go. That's why we're going to talk about it again in three weeks and four weeks and eight weeks. And we're going to keep to because it keeps coming up. Because it is the subject upon which Christianity is based. Let's pray. Lord, help us to talk about the resurrection. Teach us to make it all about the resurrection. Help us to live as though the resurrection is the certainty that it is. And in so living, proclaim it to other people. Help us show others. Help us to bring others to a point where they've got to make a decision about this fact of the resurrection. Either it happened, and they've got to bow their knee to you. Or it didn't. And they should mock us. But either way, Lord, let us get people thinking about, reflecting on contemplating the resurrection by your Holy Spirit work in lives that they would see it for what it is the historical reality that you by which you broke into this world and marked out your people we pray this in the name of the resurrected son Amen